It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hello, and welcome to Identity Crisis. My name is David C. Kalman, filling in this week for Yehuda Kurtzer. Identity Crisis is a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Harp Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, and this week's show is about Jewish children's literature. Many of you probably saw in the last week that there was a big blow up in the news around six titles written by Dr. Seuss that Dr. Seuss's publishers decided to no longer publish as a result of some racist depictions in those books. This is a subject that I wrote about recently in the LA Times, and it's pretty clear as part of that discussion that children's literature is a subject that matters not just to children, but matters to the people who read books to children and really to society as large. I know as someone who spends a lot of time reading books to kids, that being a parent, watching the kind of literature that you see yourself reading to your kid, you end up forming a lot of opinions about that literature. And I think that's certainly true about Jewish children's literature. The foremost publisher of Jewish children's literature in the world today is an organization called PJ Library, which has been around since 2005, which has really kind of consolidated a lot of the Jewish publishing market through sheer force and through the important fact that the books that PJ Library sends out are entirely free. So for this week's episode, I thought it would be helpful to interview Meredith Lewis, who is the Director of Content, Education, and Family Experience for PJ Library North America, to have a sense of exactly how this organization runs, how it imagines its place in the world of Jewish children's literature, and how it imagines trying to navigate the very difficult task of trying to satisfy Jews all across the educational and denominational and religious spectrum, both in North America and overseas. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Take a listen. My first question to you is, what do you imagine PJ Library to be? So you're effectively the most important publisher of Jewish children's literature, certainly North America, perhaps in the world. Do you see your role as putting great books out into the world? Or is your role instead to provide a kind of relatable content to marginally engaged families that happen to take the form of a book? So PJ Library started out as it is primarily a book distributor. And so I tell people, not only were we based on, but you can see a lot of similarities in our program to Dolly Parton's Imagination Library, which takes classic books, new award-winning books, beautiful titles, and sends us to families who, in many cases, otherwise wouldn't have access to books in order to facilitate literacy. And I say for PJ Library that in most cases, what we're working on is cultural literacy. In particular, we know that globally, even some of our countries where this program serves also as a literacy program. Most of our families were already reading to their children or were focused on literacy. And so what we're helping here is bring a different type of subject matter to an act they're already doing. We mostly do that by distributing other people's books that they have created, certainly other authors and illustrators, but other publishers. And I think that still is our goal, though we are creating a lot more of our own content. The name PJ really stands for pajamas. There's no hidden like the J must be Jewish. I mean, we are. That's not what the J here stands for. And the use case that we still imagine is parent, guardian, family member 
sitting down with a child before bed, which I think is a really sacred moment. The day is ended. I mean, Judaism looks at this where we're grateful for what we've had, where we're looking forward to the next day and spending some time reading together, asking questions, learning something new. We, of course, know that our books are read in classroom settings. Our books are read all throughout daytime hours as well. But I think it harkens to the experience that we're thinking about, which is parent plus child or family member plus child sitting, snuggling and reading together. When I was researching for this episode and reading up about PG Library, the comparison that came to mind is that PG Library occupies, and this isn't the perfect analogy, occupies a similar space to something like Facebook in the sense that it is, on the one hand, a kind of distribution platform, but because of its size, it also has an important role to play in the actual content that gets people as well. And of course, as with Facebook, people have all kinds of opinions, both about the distribution and then also about the content that comes to them. It's hard to think about Peach Library without thinking as well about the state of Jewish publishing in general. And full disclosure, I run a small Jewish publishing house. I have not successfully had a book published with Peach Library yet. Yet. But as you know, the Jewish publishing world is not doing so well. There's been a lot of consolidation. The nonprofit model obviously relies on donors continuing to keep the lights on. And so Peach Library has grown quite significantly at the same time as a lot of other Jewish publishers have shrunk. So the result is that for many families, PJ Library books in effect define the category of Jewish children's literature, period. And thinking about there's another kind of consolidation happening in the general publishing world, and people ask, well, what does it mean if the big five publishers move down to the big four, big three? And like in some ways, PJ Library gives you a sense of like what it would look like to have a kind of single organization that in effect controls a category of publishing. So I'm curious, even while you're primarily primary mandate is distribution and that particular moment in the day, how you think about that quite important role in being the face of Jewish children's literature for American Jews? Yeah, look, there's a ubiquity that comes with PJ Library outside of the traditional Orthodox community. There are publishers that produce books kind of exclusively for that market. But yeah, I was talking with a family recently about some questions they had about our framework. And we both came to the conclusion that a lot of people see PJ Library as a public good, right? It just like, it kind of appears. You sign up for it once. We do make it available to any family, regardless of their Jewish background, whether or not they have no Jewish practice or whether or not they are a very rich and full Jewish practice and observancy. And perhaps these books are not adding material that wouldn't otherwise be in their home. But it's not a public good. It is a nonprofit that has staff that are making decisions, that has donors, that has community partners. And so I think because of the size that we've grown to in the niche in which we exist, it's easy to think about it that way. What I do know is that, and I would love for any of our listeners or anyone at the Hartman Institute, if they have data that suggests otherwise, I don't think that there's any Jewish engagement or education experience in North America that reaches more people, more children than PJ Library. So if you look at the number of day schools, students, if you look at the number of camps, if you look at the number of people that go to supplementary schools, I just don't think anything's approaching 250,000 kids. And with that, we do think about that what the future generation will know about Jewish life might in large part be shaped by what they get in the PJ Library books. The responsibility that we have to choose our content is then both very awesome and fun and exciting, but very awesome in the sense of that world, that that's a really big responsibility. And what are we putting out there? What's available to put out there? And when what we want isn't available, what can we do about that? And what are those limitations? And on the other side, if that is all of someone's Jewish education, that won't be enough. It won't. Even the best children's books don't do the job of great teachers. 
as you're kind of getting to, there are certain people for whom if an idea doesn't appear in a PG library book, they may never encounter it. And obviously, that is in tension with the fact that you want to create books that people will actually read and will feel comfortable reading to their kids. I'm curious, then, if you can speak a little bit to kind of the nitty-gritty of how books actually get developed. What's the process by which a book comes up, is considered, and released or rejected? Yeah, so we have two programs. One is PJ Library, and that's what I think most people know about, which is a program that goes up to age nine. And then we have a middle grade program, which focuses on tweens, and the process is a little different. So I'll speak most about PJ Library, and we cover three main areas in our books. We cover what we call Jewish cycles. That includes life cycle events important milestones for families and holidays. We believe that kids thrive in routine. That's been a big problem during the pandemic that we're not on our usual schedules. And Judaism has wonderful routine. Every Friday, we do something. Every new moon, we do something. But Judaism acknowledges when you do things for the first. Shachianu moments is a lot of what I think defines childhood. So we think that's an important area for kids to have exposure to. And kids will get books about many Jewish holidays. All of them will get books about Passover, Hanukkah, and the high holidays. And they'll get a lot of other holidays, but I won't guarantee which ones they will and won't get depending on when they sign up. We do values. So we look to traditional Jewish texts to the values that have been espoused for ourselves, how we treat other people, and how we interact with the world and the divine. And then we also look at Jewish narratives. We look at history and historical texts. We look at contemporary fiction. We look at Israel. We look at biographies. Kids can't understand where they're going unless they understand where they've come from. We want children to see themselves as part of the Jewish story. And obviously for values, I think it goes with explaining. I've never met a parent that doesn't want to raise a good kid. (laughs) They could use some help. So within those guidelines, we receive books in a number of different ways. We receive already published books from either publishers, authors, or families, educators. People say, hey, I think PJ Library might want to distribute this book. Many of them are new books. Some of them are old books. And we review all of those suggestions that come into us. We receive new books directly from authors in the hopes that if PJ Library accepts that book, it will then get a publishing deal. We sometimes receive a manuscript from a publisher that is considering producing a book. And they want to know if PJ Library is interested in that because that's going to make a difference about what's called a P&L statement, a profit and loss statement. Frankly, will they not lose money creating a book? No publisher will lose money creating a book. It's still capitalist America. And we receive books from agents who the book might be with a trade publisher. It might not be there. who are kind of acting as a go-between. We also receive manuscripts sometimes from other people, friends of someone who didn't want to submit it, family members, an illustrator. Um, But those are generally how we get them. And either PJ Library makes a commitment earlier in the process, we say barring it this book, Jumping Shark, its plot totally changing or the art not being conducive to children will be interested in this book. And sometimes we say, we really love this idea, but we're not ready to say yes right now. If it does get published, or if you have a publisher that's interested, let us know because we're able to distribute something. And there have been many books that sometimes we have not said yes to early in its development stage that once an amazing editor, an amazing illustrator, and a great publishing house has crafted something that you know a lot about, we then see a different product and then we can feel a lot of confidence distributing that. On our picture book program in North America, we'll distribute 99 unique titles a year. On our middle grade program, we'll add an additional 48. That's a whole lot of books. When you're reviewing books, is there a single most common reason that a book ends up getting rejected? So there are four criteria that we look at and not every book meets all four criteria to the same level, but books are rejected when they don't meet them. 
So the first one is we're looking for something that fits those three framework elements, cycles, values, and narratives. And so if we're getting a book that's not about those Jewish ideas, that's not going to work for us. We're looking that a book is high quality in both its art and its text. And like most manuscripts, they only come in as text. So we're looking at the potential for art. We're also looking for the format to match the text. And so board books are for babies. And so if you have a beautiful board book, but it's really an adult idea, and there are plenty of the children's industry thrives off of board books for adults, we tend not to send those out. We're really looking for a book that speaks to the child. Likewise, you can have a rhyming book with a very simple idea for an eight-year-old. And we say, hey, where's the plot? Where's the character development? These are kids that are watching amazing Disney Plus movies, and many of them are reading Harry Potter, and they want a story that moves. You can't tell a day in a life story to an older kid unless it's like really, really done well. So that's all about kind of the craft element. We're looking for a book that families will want to read again and again, right? And it's, uh, you know it if you see it criteria, but there are elements of picture book writing that beg someone to come back. We want these books to stay on shelves. We want people to not look at them and say, what do I do with this PJ library book when I'm done with it? Because they don't want to be done with it. And I think all of us have had that experience of holding on to a book from childhood or our kids holding on a book for longer than we would have thought. It's because those are great books for those kids. And we're generally looking for a book that either has what I would call overt Jewish content, right? It is a Jewish story. There are Jewish characters and a child knows that and a parent knows that. We don't want it to be too insider. We want it to be welcoming to Bali Israel to some extent, but really, you know, like we need to factor in that more than half of our families have a parent who wasn't raised Jewish. At the same point, it can't talk down. And we try to avoid what sometimes we call broccoli books, but a book that feels like eat your vegetables, you need to read this. And there are a lot of children's books like that, and I think they do have a place. But we're looking for a book that Jewishly and overall in tone is something that's going to hit a wide range. And so you mentioned something before in your questions. We don't target our books specifically to people who I would say are more in the margins of Jewish life, but we have a lot of families that are. And I have to think about them when I'm sending a book as much as I have to think about a family who's incredibly engaged. Not every book's going to be right for every family, but we hope that people can step back at their experience and say, some of the books here were really right for us. Some of them were okay. Some of the books my kid loved and I didn't like, which I say to parents, suck it up, frankly, and some books an adult's going to love and their kid's not going to fall in love with, and that's fine as well. In a year of big challenges, it's important to come back to big ideas, the kinds of ideas that inspire, ideas that start conversations, ideas that both speak powerfully to the moment and help us envision a better world. That's why the Shalom Hartman Institute is so proud to introduce you to Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas being launched this spring, available both in print and online. The first issue tackles current events and systemic challenges alike, including whatever happened to Jewish pluralism, whether Jewish continuity is fundamentally sexist, and the communal implications of life in an extended pandemic. As a listener to this podcast, you're invited to claim your free copy of the inaugural edition of Sources. To get it delivered to your door or to your inbox, visit sourcesjournal.org today. Once again, that's sourcesjournal.org. Thank you.
So the next thing I want to ask you about is the critiques of PJ Library, which if you're a parent and you're getting anything for your kids on a regular basis, you are obviously going to develop very strong opinions about it. And I know that people have many, many opinions about PJ Library from all different angles. And I was trying to kind of consolidate the various critiques that people have had of the program of the books. And I came up with four things that people basically ask about. So I want to present them to you and then ask you some questions about it. The first thing that I see people asking about is a critique of, I don't feel represented. I don't feel represented coming from the LGBT community. I think there are relatively few PJ Library books that explicitly represent same-sex couples. And there are a lot of Orthodox Jews who I think also feel like they're not represented, right? Like characters who maybe aren't wearing kippah, or there's objections to the inclusion of female clergy. There are objections for lack of representation of Jews of color or non-Ashkenazi Jews. And then there's two other critiques which are compliments. One is that the content feels thin, and the other is that the content feels too thick. On the one side, there's not enough about Torah itself or that it's a little bit too clear, too transparent, that it's trying to instill some kind of Torah values, and the kind of preachiness of it clouds out whatever story it's trying to tell. And on the other side, a sense of the content feeling too pedantic. So Michael Weingart, writing in Mosaic magazine, wrote, Imagine a good night moon in which Margaret Weiss Brown was obliged to devote pages to explaining what a moon was. Which I get, right? Like, you don't want to have a story which is explanatory. And I think the example you were talking about Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, where you kind of have to do that in order to have the story make sense, gives an impression of that. The last critique that I've seen is that some of the books just feel kind of mediocre. That it's obvious in releasing 99 books in a year, not everyone is going to be a hit. But I think this in some ways goes back to the question of what PG Library is as a publisher, as a distributor. I know most publishers, their dream is to be producing like the next amazing generation defining book, right? The next Dr. Seuss, the next Mo Willems. So I'm wondering about whether the way in which PG Library books ends up constraining the creativity or the ways in which you can have children's books and Jewish children's books that are a little bit different or do something in a little bit more of an unconventional way. Those are the four. I'm curious what your thoughts are. And I want to ask one question specifically, because I think it kind of gets at some of these critiques, which is that your model is to release the same books to many, many Jews in America who come from a wide variety of backgrounds, wide variety of denominational backgrounds, educational knowledge, all that stuff. And one way you can kind of resolve some of these problems is by just segmenting the population. So I want you to address those critiques, but I also specifically would love to hear your thoughts about creating different tracks of books for different people. So we've been asked about that question about tracking. Honestly, you start to see the hate in our community very quickly. I don't want to see people ever that have a kippah. You want to be part of the Jewish community and you don't want to see someone that has a kippah. My family's from Eastern Europe. I don't want to see Black Jews. Really? That's hateful. That's disgusting and it's objectionable. And that's not our goal. Our goal is to show the diversity and broad swaths of the Jewish community. It's a free program that people sign up for. We want as many people as possible to be a part of it. But I also know that this is not a program for every Jewish family. And they are under no obligation to sign up for a program and or to love every single book. And I think like that goes back to this public good question, which is, this is something that is being provided free to families as a gift on behalf of the community. But I also want to remind people, like for a lot of families, this is going to bring in books that they wouldn't otherwise see. And I think most educators would say that's really important. You should be seeing books with people that are different than you. Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, who is a professor emeritus at the Ohio State University, wrote a piece that defines children's literature in 1990, which talks about that some books are windows, 
you get to see someone else's experience, a different time, a different place, a different culture. And great books are sliding glass doors and you're welcome into their world. And there are other books that are mirrors, that a child looks in that book and says, that looks like me. That's my experience. I've had that feeling too. I've had that experience. And they feel affirmed and they feel part of the community. And we've all stood next to a window. And when the beautiful sunlight is shining right, it becomes a mirror. And the best of the books do both. They show you a different experience. They show you someone that doesn't look like you. And they also affirm your identity. Or they look exactly like you. And yet they still offer you a window into difference. I think the Jewish community for a long time has done a very poor job about creating mirror experiences because we've been really good to idealize right? what used to be, what was great. And we don't recognize the here and now and affirm people. PJ Library needs to do a better job about more mirror books. The entire children's literature industry has had a widespread movement for a number of years called We Need Diverse Books. And the reality is that in 2018 and 2019, and stats are still being run for 2020, a child who is non-white is twice as likely to see a family of animals than they are a kid that looks like them. It's unacceptable in America today, and it's probably worse in Jewish children's literature, where the assumption by many Jewish people, and certainly by non-Jewish publishers, is that Jews are white, and many of them aren't, and that Jews are straight, and many of them aren't. That is a huge issue, and that's something PJ Library currently right now has a call for new manuscripts focused on a few areas. That includes Jews of color, BIPOC is what I would say the children's industry is using as a term. We're looking for greater ethnic and cultural representation. We don't see enough books about Sparty Jews, Mizrahi Jews. We don't have enough books about queer families. It's simply a problem. PJ Library published one under our own imprint this past January and distributed to age one. And I think it's one of six books that I know out on the market. That's not okay. We're looking for greater religious practices. We're looking for representation of Orthodox families. We're looking for representation of secular families. We're looking for contemporary immigration stories. And we're also looking for different family structures. Again, more than half of our families have a parent who wasn't raised Jewish. We have a lot of interfaith families. We have a lot of single parent families. We have a lot of adopted families. We could create literally hundreds of unique possibilities. And we don't see those in books. And so that's our call right now, which for us came through looking at what we had and what we didn't have under the auspice of our educational framework, values, cycles, and narratives. Those are the stories we tell. And under that, we need to make sure that all sorts of Jews are seeing themselves. And we need to focus on the areas where we haven't seen books yet. It sounds like there's a shift underway. I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit more about why that's happening. It sounds like it's happening right now. I think part of it is the maturation of PJ Library. I think our publishing imprint is five years old. We've been able to successfully produce books. We have grown to a point that if PJ Library gets a manuscript that we are committed to see coming to the market, we have pathways to do it. We're producing enough books that trade publishers take our phone calls. They want our opinion whether or not books are going to be published. And when that can't happen, we have our own. We've also grown globally. Our largest program is Sifriyat Pajama in Israel. It reaches the majority of families in Israel. We also fund a program and work on a program, Maktabat Al-Thanus, which works in the Arab-Israeli population. It is one of the world's largest purchasers of Arabic children's books. That is something that is bizarre for us, but it is the reality and has employed a lot of people and just like created pathways for Arab-Israelis to tell their stories. And that's complicated. It really is. But because we've grown on those fronts, as well as into 30 other countries in seven languages, 
globally, we're taking advantage of what you said before, that size, that kind of monolith. We're trying to recognize that it comes with some consequences, especially in an industry that defines success on making money, not on always telling a great story. And there's a way to use that power for real good. Now I can take a step back and say, whoa, there are more than 1,100 unique titles we've produced. What's missing? It's much harder to do that when you have 20 books in your lineup or even 500 books in your lineup and say, what's missing? Because you don't feel like you've done some of your basics. So I think that's what's shifted. And also there aren't so many more countries to go to. There aren't that many more languages. And so growth, I think, has really been focused now on content. Whereas I think a couple of years ago, growth was actually on numbers of the programs and partnerships and maturing a nonprofit. So the question about thick and thinness, I would say that it's almost as if you've read some internal surveys. At PJ Library on our last triennial, we survey our families. And so we hear from between 20 and 25,000 families in North America. It's a big survey for those people that love Jewish data. About 85% of our families are happy with the Jewish content in the book. I believe it's 7% that says the books are too Jewish and 8% says the books aren't Jewish enough. That's a pretty comfortable place to be in the big tent. And I have to recognize those 8% and 7% really are having an experience that doesn't feel great for them. And how do we make sure that they see things that either beef up or that feel more inclusive depending on where they're sitting? It is things that we try to apply to all the books. So the fact that we have French flaps where if you think about it, we only do paperbacks. That is a logistics of mailing. Believe me, that I know very well. So paperback books traditionally don't have book flaps, but we do. And we try to say what's Jewish about this book or to add some Jewish teaching. We have discussion questions for kids. We have activities. So it might be a story that you personally think is not as robust. And I think you can sometimes read those flaps and read the end papers and read back matter that might be included and see a more robust story. I'd also like encourage people to ask kids, right? Kids have sometimes poor taste in media. I have an eight and 10 year old. They watch junk and they love it. That being said, I don't want to say mediocre, but what adults love, kids don't always love and vice versa. But to the beauty, kids can see things in books that we don't see, right? And so we are redoing our flaps now for the third time in a couple of years because we're learning a lot more and we're talking to people to say, what are the types of questions that we can put in front of parents and kids to dive deeper into those books? even when on surface level, it isn't as powerful. And for some of the books that feel, as you said, a little bit more pedantic, I think those are some of the broccoli books. And we try to be selective on them. We try to say, if a book is going to lean more towards the teaching and the learning side, it really should have great art. It should really have a good story of that side. And the thing that we're teaching should be really, really important. Right? It shouldn't be an inconsequential thing. So an adult can say in their head, and sometimes the kids can say, it's really important that we hear this story. And we try on the other side, when a book feels that it is more surface level, first of all, it's great for kids to have fun. And I think picture books are not doing that as much as they used to. But we do try to say, what else is there? Why are we so happy with this book? What's fun about it? And again, I would challenge almost any parent, go to the library, grab 10 books based on a read, a cover, Put them in front of your kids and see if your expectations of the book lined up exactly with your kid for all 10. I hope that most of them would, but not all. And that's a great thing about getting into the heads of kids. And so we try to think about all of our audiences and create an experience. And we hope that if there's a book that you don't love, there are places to give PJ Library books. We know that many synagogues feel inundated with them. I don't encourage people to drop them off at your local synagogue or day school. They get subscriptions from us and 
odds are they don't want to, but you can ask. Sometimes there are certain books that they don't have. Lots of our families bring books to food banks. Many food banks now give out books. I encourage people to think about local churches and mosques and other interreligious centers where representation of Jews would be really helpful. Many public schools and public libraries do take books either as part of their collection or as their donation. Lots of old age homes, particularly Alzheimer's units, really thrive on having picture books because that's something that can evoke certain memories um, for people in a very positive way. And many of our families are building free little libraries or connecting in places in the community where there can be a free exchange of books. I say with all sincerity that there have been times in Jewish history when our books have been physically and metaphorically attacked. And I think if we have a few too many books, it's one of the things that I will be okay with. I also am cognizant of waste, and I don't want that to be a problem. I think about paper and how we take care of our environment. But I do think that a lot of times our books have been threatened. And I like that there's an abundance of Jewish books in the world. It's a good thing I do. And that's my job. But I'm okay with it. I'm with you. And I think those responses are very helpful for me. And they also kind of reinforce what it means to both be producing so many books for so many people and also having a kind of mandate to be producing books that are going to be interesting, acceptable, educational for the vast majority of the people that you're sending them out to, which does put you in a situation where it's only at like the thousandth book that you can produce X kind of book or Y kind of book. And in a way, you know, it makes me a little bit sad about the shrinkage of the Jewish book market because there are some incredible books that are also super niche. But kind of parallel to PG Library, there's the entire world of Orthodox Jewish book publishing, which in some ways operates very differently in part because they have many more assumptions about exactly what they their readers are looking for. And so their books end up kind of looking different and can make different kind of creative choices. And so going back to the Facebook analogy, or actually maybe to think about something like Marvel, if you're making blockbuster books, that puts you in a situation where you have to make big choices about what American Jews are going to like, that ends up making books that on the one hand, most people do like, but on the other hand, there are certain kinds of books which may not make the cut. Yeah, I mean, I think two points real quickly. One is that children's book publishing is on the rise. The number of children's books writ large, is increasing. Is that true for Jewish children's books, though? No one is actually doing numbers on Jewish children's books. And I think this is a case where PJ Library would skew the numbers. If you looked at the sheer number that are being purchased, obviously, we're adding to that by the tens and thousands on a monthly basis. But overall, while that's happening, and that growth has actually been very consistent, even through the 2008 recession, fewer titles are being produced. Publishers are relying on bigger books to make bigger hits. And I think that's a challenge for Jewish publishers. Not that the publishing market is contracting because children's isn't contracting. It's that the mid-list book is really shrinking. What I will say is that in the past few years, I know of at least a half a dozen new Jewish children's publishers outside of Israel. And that's actually really exciting for us. And so while I do think there have been some challenges in the last couple of years, I'm only seeing growth. And one of the things that PJ Library is trying to do is trying to make sure that our criteria is out not only to authors and agents, but to those publishers, so that when they have a book that's a good fit for us and they want to sell a book to us, that we can be there. And some of them are going to make niche decisions that aren't right for PJ Library. And we like so want people to purchase those. A big shift also in the past two or three years is that PJ Library is much more likely to feature a book that we didn't distribute on our website, on our social media share an author because we believe the strength of the field contributes to the strength of our program. Okay, last question. 25 years in the future, thinking outside of the realm of PJ Library, what do you hope Jewish children's publishing looks like? I think you're going to continue to see multimedia channels. One of the things I love, and my kids are some of the best examples, but they're not the only ones. Kids have no idea what the difference is between a podcast and an audiobook. 
they're consuming a narrative story in parts. And I think you're going to continue to see more of that where the lines between our digital channels and our print channels and multimedia are going to get blurry for kids. They're just going to focus on narrative and where they heard it and where they heard the story. So I'm excited actually to see how more of that can collapse. You see that in kids in general that like a kid has a toy of something, they have branded underwear, they have a book, they have a Netflix, and they like super get into those characters and those stories and they become pervasive. And so I would hope for Jewish children's publishing that there actually gets to be some more multi-channel approaches. I think that would be great. I think that would continue to position us. I also think that there's a canon of Jewish stories that we have not told. Occasionally, mostly from Israel, I get stories that are pretty much lifted out of the Talmud or someone's taken a midrash and they've played with them. And I don't know all of the stories by any stretch, but regularly I am getting a story or two a year of a midrash I've never encountered. And even if I've encountered it, I've never thought about it for children. And someone played with it. And I think sometimes people say, I'm getting the same books and I'm getting the same ideas. And I was like, yes, our publishers are gravitating to some of the classic folk tales, which are very young in the history of Jewish life. And I really hope that Jewish education can catch up and help more people that feel comfortable exploring those texts, those ideas that have been around for a long time and resurfacing them. Because I really do think that there are so many unique story ideas that haven't been told. And I worry not about books being published, but about the story ideas being limited and us not getting to those great ideas. And so that's what I would hope in the next 25 years that we move toward and continue to think about who else is exploring Jewish story, who's doing Jewish education, who's training the future authors, and how we can work together so that people still in 25 years from now, you know, like my grandkids could be reading a book. And they would say, ah, oh, there's literally never been a picture book about this story. And on your last point, there's this longstanding academic debate about whether Jews historically have had visual art, which I think a lot of people were like, no, of course they don't. The Ten Commandments say that you can't make depictions, which is silly. Obviously, they have had art for a very long time. And there are certainly lots of Jewish depictions of biblical stories. But one thing really is missing from Jewish history is copious depictions of stories from Midrash or from the Talmud, which are really very striking stories, which could have produced the same kind of Renaissance depictions that you have within Christianity, but you don't have those. There isn't kind of a tradition of these stories being put over into visual form. And so you then have to have someone really inventing it for the first time, and then kind of creating a tradition of speaking about that, which didn't exist previously. And I'd argue that oftentimes they're ripe for children's stories because The Torah has a lot of things that even if they are intended to teach our next generation are not kid-friendly stories. We all know about that. But because Midrash is doing its job of filling in the holes and explaining it, it's almost positioned better. So that might be my one call for listeners of this podcast also, because I imagine some of the people that are stakeholders and supporters and enthusiasts of Hartman also like text and like diving into that. And as I said before, we take submissions from anyone. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate you coming in to talk with me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Harman Institute of North America in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. It was produced this week by Alex Dillon and myself and edited by Alex Dillon with music provided by So Called. To learn more about the Shalom Harman Institute, visit us online at shalomharman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. You can also write to us at identitycrisis at shalomharman.org. Subscribe to our show on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible. Everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Thanks for listening.